Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, you can turn them with me to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, we've got some for you. Just lift up your hand. We'll get one over to you right now. Or you can follow along on the screen. Ephesians 4, and we're going to start verse 17. Read on down through verse 24. Apostle Paul writes, as he's carried along by the Spirit of God, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Father, we recognize this morning that you have not called us to remain as we are. You have called us to be new creations. I pray that you would help us to put off our old self and put on Christ. Father, I pray that as the Word of God goes forth this morning, as it is read and as it is preached and as we meditate on it, Father, I pray that you would silence any powers and principalities that would seek to confuse us or distract us, Father, from your word, which is life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I've gotten plenty of looks and questions this morning already about what I'm wearing. And that was intentional. Um, obviously, I don't normally wear a suit on Sunday. I don't have anything against wearing a suit on Sunday. This is how I, I preached for many years up to this, till we started Harbin's. And, and I don't mind if you come in a suit on a Sunday morning. But of course, we don't mind if you come in jeans either. That's an that's a, you know, individual choice you make. And based upon your Christian liberty, of course, you want to dress modestly and not uh, distract others. And some of you already said in here, my suit is a distraction to you. So I apologize if I'm causing anyone in here to stumble this morning. But, you know, there's been different, different comments, you know. Carol said, who died? So, um, <laughs> and uh, a couple of you said, ooh, I really like that. So, you know, to each his own. But I'm wearing this today because I wanted to stand out. I don't normally wear suits on Sunday mornings, and so I knew that if I were to come in a suit this morning, I would stand out by what I was wearing. The clothes I had on would be, probably be different than what most of you guys in here were going to be wearing today. So I am wearing the illustration today for the sermon, and I hope it's not a distraction. But I wanted to make a point. I wanted to stand out. I wanted you guys to notice me as I came in today. And sure enough, not a single one of you didn't say something or have some sort of remark or a smirk or something. I got a re reaction from pretty much everybody. And as we look at this passage today in Ephesians, as we're into this application portion of this book, Paul is challenging Christians to live in such a way, to have a lifestyle, to have a manner of walk that stands out from the world that's different. I've entitled today's message, Dress Differently. And as we walk through today's text and the text we're going to look at next week, we're going to see how Paul's challenging us to walk differently, to dress differently, to be different than the world. Matter of fact, a different dress, spiritual dress, a different manner of life, a different walk should be the outcome of anyone who has truly come to faith in Christ, who has truly given him their heart, who has truly learned Christ. And so we're going to walk through that this morning. It says in verse 22, to put off your old self. The image here is of clothing. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So I brought this morning a, a contrast to what I'm wearing 
some old work clothes that are that are uh, I would never wear on a Sunday morning that are that are ripped up and dirty and uh, stained, and we are to no longer walk in our former manner of life. We're no longer to dress like that. But instead, in verse 24, it says, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, you guys have all experienced it. Maybe, maybe you've been overseas. I don't know how many of you guys have, have lived overseas or been overseas, but when I lived overseas, you could always tell there were gringos, which I was one of them, but then there were tourists. There were the turistas that came through, and the tourists always stood out. They had they would wear the floral shirts that nobody in their right mind would ever wear at any other time in their life. They'd wear the floral shirts. They would wear the, the, the camera around their neck and the shorts, and it just, they stood out like a sore thumb. Or when I was a kid in Ecuador, I stood out because of my hair. And Whenever we would watch replays of the soccer games we would go to, we could always find ourselves in the stand because you're looking for the one white dot in the middle of all these dark-headed people. Or maybe you've known somebody and you're not live. I remember, I, I believe his name was Aaron, a kid in college who was just really strange. This dude was just weird. And he dressed weird. He wore his hair weird. He did weird things. And he stood out. So the image here I want us to have as I wear this and to talk about those things is that we are to stand out. If we're applying the things that Paul wants us to apply, if we're living the life that Christ wants us to live, we should stand out in the world. People should look at us and say, that person is different for good reasons. And so that's what the image here is of putting on something and taking off something that Paul is speaking of in this text. Remember, as I mentioned, we're entering the application portion of Ephesians. It starts in chapter 4, the whole application section. You know, the first half of Ephesians is doctrine, teaching. The second half of Ephesians is application, living, Ephesians 4.1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. So that's how Paul launches us into, therefore, based upon all this stuff he's just taught us about us being um, born again and how uh, we've been saved by grace through faith alone and, and everything else he's taught us about being reconciled with God and reconciled with other men. He now says, okay, therefore, you are to walk, you are to apply, you are to live in such a way. And so, in this, first, in this, book, in this chapter, I should say, in Ephesians chapter 4, we kind of have it broken into two parts. Let's see if y'all can get my clicker working back there for me. Okay, verses 1 through 16, okay, Paul is calling on us to live in step with Christ's saving call in our lives. In verses 1 through 16, that calling that he's saying. He says, we are called to be one new people, and therefore we are to cultivate unity. We are called to be one new people of God. That's been a major theme in this book, that we are one, no longer Jew or Gentile. We are one in Christ, and therefore we are to cultivate unity. And Demer, for the past two weeks, preached on that section of Scripture, and there's a whole lot more than just unity there. That has a lot of implications to it, but the overall theme of that text is unity. And then now in verses 17 through 24, this next section, what we have is that we are called to be a holy people for God, and therefore we are to cultivate purity. So it's another one of the themes of this book, holiness, a people set apart for God, and therefore we are to cultivate purity. We are to be different. We are to be set apart. So let's jump into this text, verse 17. He says, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. When, when he says that, I say and testify, okay, the combination of these two verbs in the original language serves the purpose of creating a sense of urgency, creating a sense of importance. This is of utmost importance, what Paul is about to say to us. I say and testify in the Lord. This is not Paul's opinion. He is speaking the Lord's words here. There is importance in this first sentence. There is authority in this first sentence. So I stand before you here this morning, not with apostolic authority of Paul, but with the apostolic authority of this word right here that we have delivered to us. And so I stand with utmost importance and with authority 
to speak these things that Paul is speaking to us through the Holy, that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us through Paul. That we must no longer walk or live. That, that word walk just simply means our manner of life. We must no longer live. Okay, this is tying it all the way back to verse 1 about our walk. We should no longer walk in a manner, we should walk in a manner worthy of our calling, which means we no longer walk how? As the Gentiles do. As the Gentiles do. Now, what does that exactly mean? What, what does it mean that we shouldn't walk as the Gentiles do? Especially when you consider that Paul is writing a letter here to a church in Ephesus that's made up ethnically of mostly Gentiles. These are Gentile believers. Surely there are some Jewish believers there in this congregation, but the bulk of the people there, ethnically speaking, are Gentiles. Um, some translations, you'll, you'll read it says, do not walk as the other Gentiles do. But that other, that word other is not really in the the earliest and best manuscripts that we have. And so really, Paul's saying, don't walk as the Gentiles do. But Paul here is not talking about ethnicity. Paul is reinforcing what he's already taught throughout this whole book. That if you are in Christ, you are now part of God's family. You are no longer alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. But instead, you are part of the people of God. Spiritually speaking, you are a Jew. You are the true Israel. You are the people of God. And so you are no longer a Gentile. So spiritually speaking, Gentiles were those separated from God. Jews were those who were God's people. The ethnicity barriers have been brought down. And now all who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior have been brought into the family of God. And now they are true Israel. They are Jews. They are part of the people of God. And we've talked about that already and you can go to Galatians 6, 15 through 16 if you want to read some more about us being the Israel of God. Or Romans 2, 28 that talks about a Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly in the heart. But Paul is in essence saying here, don't walk, don't live as those who don't belong to God. As those who are ungodly. As those who are not God's people. There should be a marked difference between us and them. And this continues the theme that flows through the whole of Scripture. We've talked about it before when we did the Jesus tribe and other things, that, that there are two ways to live. A Deemer preached a sermon in Psalm 1, I believe, called Two Ways to Live. And that's the theme throughout the Scriptures is that there's two ways. There's, you're either going to be with God and God's people, or you're going to be against God and God's enemy. And that's, that continues throughout the Scriptures, and we see it here in this passage. So now he's going to point out the difference the difference between how the Gentiles walk, how the Gentiles are dressed, and those who are God's people, and how we are to walk, and how we are dressed. So first he, he looks at the, the state of the Gentiles. Now, let me tell you here, he says in verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk. In other words, this was you too, and this was me before Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you haven't placed your hope, your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, then this is still you. Verse 17, you must no longer walk. Now I say this in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity so this is paul talking about people who are not christians who are not of god and so i would dare say that paul would not be considered very politically correct today to be saying these type of things that they are futile in their minds and darkened in their understanding ignorant callous giving themselves up to these vile practices So Paul wouldn't win any politically correct awards today. And he keeps doing this. Why does Paul keep doing this? He's done this a couple other times in this book where he keeps referring back to who we once were. In in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, those passages also, he reminds us who we once were. Why does he keep doing this? Why does he keep bringing back how bad the Gentiles are, how those are separated from God are, and how we were once those people because he wants us to know how filthy our clothes really were or if you're separated from Christ how filthy your clothes really are he wants us to know how disgusting these clothes 
are. There's, um, I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever been to a homeless shelter, been once or twice to a, a homeless shelter, but there are certain shelters that really help take care of those who perhaps have certain diseases or lice. And if you go to a shelter that deals with people who have lice, what they will do is bring homeless people in. They will take off the lice-ridden clothes. Then they will wash the person up with all the medicated wash that they need to deal with the lice. And then they will what? Put them in new clothes. They don't put them back in these clothes. Because if they put them back in these clothes, the people's condition isn't any better than it was when they first started off. Matter of fact, what they do with these clothes, the lice-ridden clothes, is they go take them and they put them in a barrel and they burn them. And they get rid of them. And they do away with them for good. And Paul wants us to see as he describes the life of someone who is not walking with God, someone who is separated from God, he wants us to see how lice-ridden these clothes are. He wants us to see how bad our old flesh really was. He wants you to see how nasty and depraved humanity really is. Those of us who were saved at a young age, I believe, need to hear this. I think we're at a disadvantage sometimes. Uh, if you're here and you were saved as an adult, you have a much clearer remembrance of what life was like before you were saved. I've mentioned this before. I was saved at nine. It wasn't like I was in a whole lot of trouble before nine. I wasn't out t- doing drugs. You know, hadn't caused any, broken any major laws or anything like that. I was just a nine-year-old boy. But here's the problem. I was just as wicked as a nine-year-old boy as the person who is out doing the drugs and breaking the laws. And as a, as a, as a person who is saved as a child, I need to be reminded that I also wore lice-ridden, sin-infested clothes. And for many of you in here like me, you need to hear this. Because if not, you'll be tempted. You'll be tempted. You'll be deceived into thinking, well, I wasn't that bad. And if you think you weren't that bad, if you think you weren't Ephesians 17 through 19, Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, if you don't think that's you, then you don't understand your salvation. Or worse, you haven't been saved. We need to understand our depravity. You know how Jesus is minimized as a Savior in this world? We sang great songs this morning to exalt Christ. You want to know how Christ is brought down in this world? It's when we minimize the depravity of mankind. And if we minimize the depravity of mankind, we bring down the glory of our Savior. And so that's what Paul wants us to see here. He wants us to see our corruption. Now notice how Paul focuses a lot on the mind. On the mind, okay? Read these, read these uh, texts again here, verses 17 through 19. Okay? He says, you, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of what? Their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and to practice every kind of impurity. The mind is huge. Our actions normally flow out of our thinking. And how we think determines how we live. So Paul describes the thinking of those who are not of God as futile. And what does this word mean? Well, it refers to something that that fails. In the Greek, it refers to something that fails to achieve its desired result. Okay, It fails to to achieve its desired result. In other words, this word futile means empty. It means it amounts to nothing. If you're apart from God, if you're separated from God, then your thinking amounts to nothing. Your thinking amounts to nothing. It says that the person whose thinking is futile is a thinking that is empty. Well, you may say, well, what do you mean here? I mean, there are, there are thousands of people that have contributed to society who have been brilliant thinkers. Are you saying that, that Stephen Hawking... That his thinking amounts to nothing? Hasn't he contributed to society with great advances in their understanding of the cosmos and 
And haven't other great thinkers and inventors contributed to society who were never Christians, who were never professed Christ? Well, yes. But the point here is that it amounts to nothing, meaning that their thinking, no matter how good it might be, is aimed at the wrong thing. You see, Stephen Hawking has unlocked a lot of the mathematical secrets of the universe that proclaim the handiwork of God. When you look at the thing, you look at the universe, and you begin to understand the complexity of it, and the complexity of how God has has ordained and created this universe and weaved it together, and how all these laws work together, and, and, and Stephen Hawking has helped us to see some of that, and yet in his latest book he boils it all down to, he says basically the whole sum of all of this is gravity. That's what it's all about. The law of gravity. What he failed to see is it's all proclaiming the glory and the excellencies of our God. And so his thinking, no matter how right it might be, it comes to a conclusion that's way off base. Therefore, it is empty. It it has not achieved the result it was aiming to achieve. And that's the way the world is. Everything in this world points to our Creator. Every flower... Every insect, every cloud in the sky, every distant star, every molecule with its invisible to the eye uh, elements to it, all of that points to the one true God. And so when we see these things and we discover these things and we learn these things, either our learning will be aimed at God or our learning will be aimed at man or something else, whatever we fill in the place of God, whether it be gravity or some other idol. Whatever we decide to put there. And it's futile thinking. It's futile thinking. Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 13, says, this is Solomon. He says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Ecclesiastes was written... To help us see, no matter what, how, no, whatever you think about how, what Solomon's state of mind as he's writing that, I think he's actually chronicling for us his own journey through his own doubts and his own troubles. And, and so you read in the Ecclesiastes over and over again, no matter what it is you fill your life up with, knowledge, wisdom, science, women, money, toil, whatever you fill your life up with, if it, ha- if it isn't aimed at the glory of God... It's all vanity. It's empty. He, Paul goes on to say that they're, not only is their thinking aimless and empty, they are spiritually blind. It says they're darkened, darkened in their understanding. There's a spiritual blindness, a blackout of the soul. They don't know which way is up or down. To live in a state of spiritual confusion and stupor is the idea that we get here from this darkened word. Maybe you've met someone before and uh, you've had this situation where something is so clear to you because God has made it clear in his scriptures and you just don't get why your friend doesn't see it. (laughs) Come on. Why don't you understand this? Why don't you understand what what Jesus is teaching us here? Why Why don't you live that way? They can't. They're darkened. They're walking around in spiritual confusion. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to, give, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So being empty of mind, being without purpose, and likewise being blind and darkened in their understanding, they cannot discern the end of all things, nor the end of mankind, and thus they prove to be ignorant, according to verse 18. And all of that ignorance... All of that spiritual darkness has alienated them from the life of God. So when Paul talks here about ignorance, you see Paul's view of knowledge and ignorance is largely based on his Jewishness and his understanding of the Old Testament. To know God or to have knowledge of God is to experience God and to have a personal relationship with Him. Knowledge, therefore, has to do with an obedient and grateful response of the whole person to who God is 
not just simply intellectual assent. Likewise, ignorance, conversely, ignorance is a failure to be grateful and obedient. It describes someone in a stance totally against God, emotionally, willfully, with his actions, and not merely one's mental response. So ignorance here doesn't get people off the hook. You can't say, well, people are ignorant about God. God won't hold that against them. That's not the meaning of this word ignorance. Plus, Paul doesn't leave us with that option because he gives us a cause here of the spiritual darkness. Look at verse 18. It says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because, here's the cause, of the ignorance that is in them due to, okay, here's the, the cause of the ignorance, their hardness of heart. That is to say that they are rebels. Those who are apart from God are rebels. Before we knew God, we were rebels. Ignorance about God and his purposes in this world does not acquit men of responsibility. It simply is the evidence that we're guilty and that we're rebels. We were all rebels. Insolent God-haters. Whether you were 9, 19, or 99 when you were saved. You and I were rebels. Guilty insurrectionists committing treason against our king. Every single person who looks at a star or a flower or a thunderstorm or whatever it might be, every single person that looks at anything that God has given us and doesn't see that it points to him and fails to acknowledge the king of the universe and all of his excellencies and glories is committing an act of treason against the king. And so Paul goes on. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. This word callous literally means to petrify. It was actually a medical term used in the Greek in Paul's day to describe a bony condition that would form in one's joints, making them stiff and hard. But more importantly, it would cause you to lose all feeling in your joint. You would lose all feeling. And that's what happens to the man who's walked away from God. His heart no longer feels the prick of the conscience. The conscience and the law of God written on our hearts is meant to prick man and to show him what he's doing is wrong. But mankind suppresses it and becomes spiritually numb. He no longer feels it. He becomes spiritually numb. When I was um, in college, I had to have two surgeries on my left wrist. And both times, although I would have preferred for them just to put me under completely, they, uh, they just blocked the arm. Okay, which isn't a fun experience, and I won't go into that. But they basically, they numb just your arm. And I'll never forget, I think it was the first time I had the surgery. Um, they, I'm totally awake. You know, I just can't feel my arm. And they roll me into the ER, and I can hear the doctors joking, and that's kind of troubling, too. They're joking and laughing and talking. And I'm looking over there. I'm just kind of looking around the room. All of a sudden, I see this big old thing just plop down beside me. And it scared me to death. It was all painted in this yellow color. It was my own arm. Okay? I just couldn't feel it. Iodine all over it. They were ready. It was all prepped and ready to go. But I remember I was just looking over the left, and all of a sudden this big old piece of meat just plopped right beside me, and it, I almost jumped off the operating table because it scared me so bad. But I couldn't feel it. I had no idea that they had been scrubbing my arm, getting it ready for the surgery. I had no idea they were sitting there fiddling with it, and they threw it over on the table like that, which was kind of harsh. I mean, it just, you know. And I didn't have any feeling. And that's the picture here that Paul is painting of of hearts that have become calloused, consciences that no longer feel any sort of prick of God's Word. When our life is empty, devoid of purpose and meaning, okay, when, when our life is empty and devoid of purpose and meaning like we've talked about here this morning, you know what? Consequently, people fill it up with something else. So here's, here's the picture that Paul's been painting. It's empty, aimless thinking, Empty, futile, aimless life. And so you've got this empty life. And so what happens when you have an empty bowl? You've got to fill it with something. And what we see here in this text, at the end of this verse here, is that these people begin to fill it. We all did. Fill it with all sorts of sensuality and greediness and impurity. When there's numbness of heart and emptiness... We try to fill our life with something that we consider to be good or right. And since our hearts are always inclined toward evil, we fill our lives with every type of practice imaginable that's against God. 
The culture today tells us, do what feels right. Do what feels right. Do what you think is right. Matter of fact, you do what you think is right, and I'll do what I think is right, and you don't dare judge me for what I'm doing right, what I think is right, and I won't judge you for doing what you think is right. All that is is another way of saying, fill your life up with whatever you want. And that's what Paul is saying. When these people that are not part of God's family fill their lives with, well, whatever they want to fill it with. Mankind misses the true meaning of everything and perverts it with his own definitions and meanings. Let me just give you an example. Um, When you talk about marriage and uh, gender roles, sexuality, the Bible gives us clear pictures and images of what that's all about. As God gives us Ephesians 4, I mean 5, and, and other passages where we know what this is all about, what marriage is to be. It's a, it's a picture of Christ's union and relationship with his church. It carries with it great importance. And gender roles, therefore, carry great importance. Deemer's small group last semester was on the importance, the God-designed importance, God-magnifying importance of their, the difference between man and woman. Well, when you don't have a biblical worldview, and that doesn't make sense to you, you're callous to that truth, despite the fact that our own bodies are evidence to the fact that God has made men and women different. You, despite the clear evidence, despite God's word, we fill it up with whatever we want to fill it up with. And so you have controversies like what's going on with Dancing with the Stars right now. Okay, you don't know what that is? Then don't worry about it. But you have controversies where people say, you know what? I'm not going to acknowledge a creator. I'm not going to acknowledge differences. I'm going to go make myself whatever I want to be because whatever I feel is right is right. I'm going to fill this bowl up with whatever I think is right. Therefore, I will do things my way. I will change my gender if need be. Whatever. And so the world is in this pattern of us filling up lives with whatever's right to us. The three things that Paul mentions here, sensuality, licentiousness might be the way it's translated in your Bible. It's an absence of any moral restraint. It can refer to the absence of discipline. The idea here is that an image of, of unbridled self-indulgence. It oftentimes in the scriptures carries with it a sexual connotation because I think that sexuality is the area where mankind is most unbridled in many instances. Greedy, the word greedy here is covetousness, self-centered living, where someone cares only about himself. And that greedy, that covetousness leads to practicing every kind of impurity. The word practice here is interesting. It actually, it refers to making a profit or a business venture. So what Paul is saying is here is that people who are apart from God make it their business to practice all these things. It becomes their venture. It becomes the way they see life to be profitable this leaves man totally devastated man without god is totally devastated now if you think paul was not pc here i'm not going to read the whole text for you because i want to stay on time today go to romans 1 verses 18 through 34 so if 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 you think paul is not being politically correct in ephesians boy he really gets politically incorrect in romans chapter 1 Because he wants us to see something. These clothes are vile. Do you get the picture? Do you see how nasty they are? That's the condition of mankind. That's the condition that both you and I were once in. And therefore, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when people act this way. One of the things that frustrates me about a lot of believers is that something like Dancing with the Stars will happen, and we get really angry about it. How could they do that? Well, if they're lost, how could they not? They need the gospel. They need the gospel. They don't need a moral challenge. That's the problem, is we get into political arenas or social arenas, and we fight moral battles when we're called to fight gospel battles. 
Because without the gospel, the morality won't come. It can't come. And so we get to verse 20. We get to the gospel. Verse 20 says, But that is not the way you learned Christ. Paul is not interested in here in laying out a new morality for us. He doesn't say, but that's not you. You guys got it down. You guys know how to live. You guys are following these rules. He doesn't say that. He says, that's not the way you learned Christ. It's a very peculiar phrase, to learn a person. It's not used anywhere else in Scripture. It's not used anywhere else in any of ancient Greek literature. To learn a person? You've learned Christ. You and I have learned a person. The key to breaking out of our old self and the devastating depravity we find ourselves in is not a new set of morals or a good example to follow. It's a person. The key to breaking out of these old clothes is not legalism and rules or even following a good example. It is a person, knowing a person, having a relationship with Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who has crushed the head of the serpent. To learn Christ is to be saved. John MacArthur points out that the tense in this verse, the past tense in this verse, learned, is aorist active indicative, meaning that it's a one-time act. It's something that happened to us in the past. That we learned Christ. Now we do not walk in the way described formerly here by Paul because something, we do not walk that way because something has happened in us and to us. And that something was a person, Jesus Christ. And how did it happen? Verse 21, Paul says, well, assuming, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. I love this because Paul kind of pauses here Assuming, because Paul knows the church, he knows just like our church and any other church in America, there will be at times, and maybe many people at times, those sitting in the pews who haven't done verse 21. They think they know Jesus. So Paul says, wait a second here. Assuming two things have happened. Number one, you've heard about him. Number two, you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. These are two important elements here regarding how someone comes to learn Christ. First, they have to hear. Your translation may say, hear him. But I believe the better translation here, even though that's literal, that's the Greek, literal, hear him. I believe, from what I've read and studied on this passage, that it's the better translation is what Paul intended, which is to hear about him. Number one, we must hear about Jesus. We must hear the message of the gospel. It must be spoken. People cannot be saved apart from hearing the message of the gospel. We've repeated this text many times here. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him who they've never, who, in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So there's a hearing element. You must hear the gospel. We don't just say, hey, follow the example of Jesus. WWJD, we give the gospel. The gospel Number two, being taught, which means we grow in our love for and in our knowledge of Jesus. It is a, a discipleship that occurs. Go, therefore, and make disciples. To hear the gospel in a saving way means also that you become a pupil in the school of Jesus. That's the kind of the language Paul's using here in verses 20 and 21 is school language. You've entered, you've entered into a new school. You're in the school of Jesus now. And if, if you are truly a believer and you've believed the message you've heard, then you are now a pupil of Jesus Christ. It's not a two-part process. You've heard people say, well, I made Jesus my Savior, but I haven't made him my Lord. That is totally unbiblical. Totally unbiblical. If you truly, Jesus has truly saved you, then he has become your Lord, and you begin to grow in him as he rules your life. You become a pupil in the school of Christ. My little children, this was Paul's desire. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That was his desire for the Galatian church. It was his desire for the Ephesian church. It's his desire for us. To be in the school of Jesus, Jesus 101. 
Jesus is the subject. We've learned Christ. Jesus is the teacher. We've heard about him. How do we hear about him through the gospel message that he came and proclaimed and that he, through his apostles, continued to proclaim around the world? He is the subject. He is the teacher. And he is our classroom. Paul has this very holistic view of the Christian life. It's not possible to truly respond to Jesus' gospel call and not be his pupil. So what we've learned, and what have we learned to do? What have we learned as a result of being a pupil of Jesus Christ? That's where we get to verse 22 through 24, the taking off, the putting on. Verse 22, put off your old self, which belonged to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In my research for this message, I found that there's some evidence that some uh, ancient churches during their baptismal practice, now you guys are used to, uh, at least uh, Southern Baptist churches, the people coming into the baptistry wearing a white robe. And, uh, you know, I was reading this week, and there was some ancient, there's some evidence that ancient baptismal practices, they would actually baptize a person, and when they came out of the water, probably not a baptistry that looked like that, but they came out of whatever body of water it was, they would then wrap them in a white robe, symbolically demonstrating that they are no longer walking in the old way. They've been buried with Christ in baptism, and they've been raised to a new walk, to newness of life. And they've put on new clothes. That's the, that's the picture here that we have in this text. So I want to get to the bottom line here. And kind of wrap up this sermon. There's three commands, three imperatives that Paul gives us here. To put off, to be renewed, and to put on. Put off, verse 22. Be renewed, verse 23. Put on, verse 24. Okay? And here's our bottom line so you can fill out your your notes. I'm going to go ahead and put both of them up. And then spend a little bit of time talking about this. We must live as people who are putting off empty, corrupt, rebellious, an empty, corrupt, rebellious lifestyle filled with deceit and selfish desires. And we must live as a people who are putting on a new, recreated, God-magnifying lifestyle filled with truth and Christ-like purity. If we truly are pupils in the school of Christ, this is what is happening. We have been created for new clothes. The verb tenses here are very, very interesting. It doesn't really come through in the English, so let me try to explain this. There are three verbs. Put off, be renewed, put on. Put off and put on, the first one and the last one, the the bread of the sandwich, if you will, they appear as commands. Okay, But we are to understand them, if you were able to, 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 to get the Greek sense of this, we were to understand them as commands that have already happened, commands of the past. In other words, when we learned Christ, these things were commanded to put off and to put on. And also the tense implies that it is something that's already certain, that these clothes are going to come off and are coming off, and these new clothes are being put on and will be put on. That's the sense here from these Words And so the ESV does a good job of tying these verses to the previous verses. Okay? They do a good job of tying these verses to the previous verse because at the end of verse 21, it says, Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him that the truth, as the truth is in Jesus, to put away or put off your old self. I think the um, NASB, I may be wrong here, actually stops the sentence at the end of verse 21 and then says with verse 22, Therefore, put off your old self. That misses the whole point. Because it's not that you were saved and now put on some morality. The point is, you were saved and by the power of that salvation, this new morality is happening in you. It's not some legalistic thing that you now have to figure out how to do. It's being done in you by the work of God. This is important. This is important. This is not some moral command that we are to do. Verse 22 is not some moral command that we are to do. It is a moral result of what has already been done in us. 
That's a very, very important distinction. That's why we should not walk as the Gentiles do, because we've been transformed. We've been made new. We are a new creation in Christ. And at the point, that point of our new creation, we begin to put off something old, and we begin to put on something new, created in the likeness of God. Put off is the decisive work done by the power of Christ in us when we learned Him, buried with Him. Put on is the decisive work done by the power of Christ in us as we learned Him, raised to walk in newness of life. Verse 24, there's an important verse there that emphasizes this. The word, the, the, I mean, the verse, important, important word, the word created. How many of you in here can create yourself? You, you're putting on this, this, um, this new self created. You didn't create it. God created it. You can create yourself. It's the same thing. God uses words like this to drive home the point that this is his work. Just like the, the word for new, new birth, that we're born again. How many of you guys can take credit for your birth? Okay, if your mama was here and you said, you know what? That was really all my work. She'd hit you upside the head and say, I've spent 18 hours in labor doing that. What are you talking about? Same thing here. New birth. We can't say, yeah. Pretty good. Nothing. We get no credit for our physical birth and no credit for our spiritual birth. And we are not the creator. God is the creator of all life, including new life in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've been created in Christ for new clothes, for a new walk, for a new way of life. This is a great mystery. This is a supernatural work. It's a mind-boggling reality that Christ is the one at work in us. Yet also, we have been told to work, to be busy, to do things for God. But let's look at the contrast here before I get to the key to this section is verse 23. I'll get to that in a second. But let's look at the contrast here. There's, there's two parallel verses. Verse 22 and verse 24 parallel each other. To put off your old self, verse 24, put on your new self. Okay, verse uh, 22, is this old self was uh, according to, it belongs to your former manner of life. This new self is, is after the likeness of God. So the old self is all about man. The new self is all about God. It, the old self here, it says it was corrupt. The new self was created. The old self expressed itself through deceitful desires. Deceit. Deceit. The reason people fill that bowl up with whatever they want to fill it up with is because they've been deceived. And they go on deceiving and being deceived. Yet the new life, according to verse 24, is true righteousness. True righteousness and holiness when we're made new we see that that stuff that we have that we filled our life up with doesn't accord to god's word and truth it's not true why is truth under attack in our society well, that may be true to you but it's not true for me i mean that is the mantra of the past 20 years in america and only growing and growing and growing Whatever's true to you is true to you. Whatever's true to me is true to me. And it comes actually from some pulpits as well. It's totally at odds with God's word. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. There is truth. It's not truth that we can define however we want. It's truth that comes from God, righteousness and holiness. But sandwiched in the middle of these two verbs, put off and put on, is another verb that says, be renewed. This verb is in a totally different tense. This verb is in a present tense that carries with it the idea of a continuous, ongoing action. Being renewed. This is the classic idea that we've talked about already, that we are becoming who we already are. We are losing the old self. 
We are putting on the new that began at rebirth. We can take no credit for it. God is still at work within us. And we are becoming who we are already meant to be. And we are called to work at it too. And to grow in our sanctification. Philippians 2.12. This is where the mystery comes in. And you just have to believe God's word. Therefore, my beloved brothers, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And he doesn't end right there. He finishes the sentence. For you work out, you work on your faith, you work on your walk with God. For, because, here's why, here's why you can work on your faith in God. Here's the reason you have the ability to even work on your salvation. For, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul can say things like this. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. What a mysterious supernatural thing to know that God has called us to be disciplined and to work on our faith to read the word to pray to to be discipled to grow in our faith yet we can take no credit for it matter the only reason we even have a desire to do those things is because God is already at work in us and so that's what we have here in verse 23 being renewed in the spirit of your minds. This is a daily, present, continuous, inward renewal of our thinking. Again, the mind is huge. Here's my last point for the day. The key battlefield in regards to our sanctification is the mind. The mind. If Satan can affect our thinking, he can alter our behavior. The mind corrupted with de deceitful, false thinking leads men into lifestyles of deceitful, false living, corruption. We are to have our minds cleaned up, have our minds set on spiritual, heavenly things. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We are to set our mind on spiritual things. It's God's means for transforming us to become like his son. We are to fight the battle of the mind. Therefore, we are to guard what goes into the mind. Songs and shows and movies, and we must be careful and discerning and guard our minds and have a biblical worldview that can discern things as you watch. I'm, I have the joy of teaching a biblical worldview class right now for a few homeschoolers, and I look forward to talking to them about that. And we're actually going to read some literature and stuff and say, okay, with a biblical framework now, Let's filter this book through this and see what's true and what's false. And that's how we are to work. That's how we are to have a filter in our mind that allows us to be transformed and to be renewed and not be conformed to this world. For those who live according to the flesh, says Paul, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. Romans 8, 5. Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think, 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 think about these things. Do not, do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians four, sixteen and following. How do we set our mind on the things of God, and on the things of heaven, on the things of the Spirit, and experience that renewal, that washing of our mind that Paul speaks of. Well, one of the clues is in this book in Ephesians, as Paul talks to us about marriage. This is a very convicting verse. Men, husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So now he's talking about not only just 
marriage here on the earth, but he's saying, hey, wait a second here. Marriage is also about Christ and the church. And then he goes on to say this, that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. How does Christ wash the church, sanctify the church with his word? It's a convicting verse to husbands because we're actually supposed to follow that example. How do we have holiness in our homes? With the word. Husbands, are we washing our wives, our families with the word? So how do we have this mind by the word? James says, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Again, all of this happens in Christ and through Christ. It's all about the gospel. It's all about him. Don't get me wrong this morning. I'm not calling on us to fix our minds through some sort of moral standard that we think we can somehow muster up the ability to keep. If you po follow Paul's argument that the mind of man is naturally inclined towards evil and leads to all sorts of sin, then we must also conclude that in order to have a mind that seeks after God to be led in righteousness and holiness, we need divine intervention. We need the gospel. If we are in him, we will put away or put on what we are created to wear, the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, 9 Put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You were created to be an image bearer, to image God. And the way we image God is as we grow in our knowledge of him and we are, these things are being less and less attractive to us and these things become more and more of who we are. We are called to righteousness and holiness. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And what does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means to dress differently. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, if we're honest, we'll acknowledge to you this morning that so much of the old clothing, that old way of life, that lice-infested attire that we used to wear, if we're honest with you this morning, Lord, we will tell you that many times in this journey that we're on, it seems so attractive. It's calling us from the corner of our room where we still haven't burned it yet. And putting on this righteousness and this holiness that we've been called to put on. God, we also must confess that we boil that down so many times to just a set of our own legalistic rules. So long as I don't do this or my kids don't see this or I go to the church or I do this or that, then, well, I'll begin to walk in holiness. But God, we know that that is just as dangerous as the clothes that are in the corner of the room. Because legalism just leads us to man-centered idolatry. So God, help us to be people who are, desire holiness because it's something that's happening in us. So we can't help but to want to put on new clothes. And let us, let us also recognize Christ Jesus that we don't have within ourselves the capacity to put on the new clothes. And we need you to continue to work in us. And so as we read our Bible more, as we study the scriptures more, as we share our faith more, as we work with others in the church in love and discipling one another more, we can take no credit for these things. Instead, we just throw up our hands and praise and say, thank you, Jesus, for the work you're doing in us. So God... I ask, Lord, that your spirit would move in a fresh way at Harbin's in a God-magnifying, man-sanctifying way that you might get all the glory and that we might be at work, hard at work, working harder than anyone, but not us, you working in us. 
Forgive us, Lord, of our sinfulness. Forgive us of our pride and our arrogance. And help us now to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received in Jesus Christ. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.